recording the sermon from Jonah chapter 4 uh, this morning and that's because uh, a couple of Sundays ago uh, in the evening we had a power cut so if you were watching the live stream you'll notice it came to an abrupt end uh, so I thought we'd just take some time and go through uh, the beginning of Jonah chapter 4 together so let's read the word of the Lord shall we uh, we'll pick up we'll read verses 4 and 5 of Jonah chapter 3 and then we'll read the first five verses of Jonah chapter 4. So Jonah chapter 3, 4 and 5, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. He made a booth for himself there and sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. This is my little sister. This is Rachel. She's a couple of years younger than me. Uh, we got on great growing up. We still do. And if there was a phrase I could think of that I heard many times and I said many times in my childhood, it is simply the phrase, that's not fair. Maybe this, uh, this picture from a family holiday to Norway uh, shows you a little glimpse of that. Um, but of course, as a kid, I liked everything to be equal or in my favour, since that was only fair, because I'm the biggest and I'm the oldest. Anything that was in Rachel's favour just couldn't possibly be fair. And I think what we see in Jonah chapter 4 this morning really is a little bit like that phrase, it's not fair. That is exactly where Jonah is. And I think as we read the beginning of chapter 4, remembering where we've come from in chapter 2 and 3, I think we're left with questions as we come out of chapter 3. We're left with questions like, how is this prophet going to celebrate? How is he going to celebrate the revival and the coming to the Lord of, 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 of the magnitude of people that were in this evil Assyrian city of Nineveh? Or maybe you wonder, well, what's next for the Ninevites? Or maybe it's just the thought of, you know, that God has worked in Nineveh and God has worked in Jonah. This is incredible. God is amazing. What's next? And you know, if this book had ended at chapter 3, we might have thought it ended abruptly. It'd be like your favourite film missing its last scene. You would be a little bit annoyed and a little bit confused, but you'd be okay. You'd be okay because the rest of it was great. And in this book, at least we would see God's redemptive plan for Jonah and for Nineveh, and we take great comfort in it. But at the end of chapter 3, there's a feel-good feeling, isn't there? Jonah is, um, ha has reconciled with God. God has pulled him back in. He has understood his task. He's done it. The Ninevites, too, have gone and have repented. It is a perfect ending. And we started then with Jonah speaking to God. Well, God speaking to Jonah. Jonah speaking back. And we saw his rebellion. We saw his incredible redemption and all these people getting saved. 
What could be a better ending than that? Well, surely chapter four isn't keeping with that. Surely chapter four just takes us to the next level. Well, you know, I'm all for plot twists in films. But one thing I cannot stand is when you watch a TV programme or a film and the ending is rubbish. I'm sure you can think of many. In recent days, The Line of Duty, the BBC police, document, uh, police series was great, but their ending was rubbish. If you invested as much as I did in Lost of the late 90s into the early 2000s, oh, the ending was tragic. Well, we end this book like that. We end this book in the most bizarre of fashions because we see then the repentance of Nineveh, and we come to these words. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, I don't know where that takes your mind hearing that of Jonah, but for me, it takes me back to the beginning of chapter one. It takes me back to the attitude that Jonah first showed right back at the very beginning. And if anything, his words and actions are even worse than they were in chapter one. Because look at everything he's seen. Look at his personal redemption and the redemption of the people. I think as we look at Jonah here, there's something for us that's less understandable and even darker about his anger. And I think in his reaction, in just this one verse, verse one of chapter four, we see his selfishness. And it leaves us, doesn't it? with so many questions. And I think on top of that, the fact that this book does not give us a happily ever after, the fact that this book does not give a save Nineveh, a save Jonah, woohoo, everything's fabulous, it leaves us wondering what on earth happened to Jonah. And you know, I'm all for cliffhangers. I like a good cliffhanger. But I don't know how much I like the cliffhanger of Jonah. Did he change his mind again? Or did he live his life out in absolute bitterness? We're never told. What we see is Jonah that leaves the pages of scripture shaking his fist at God. And we're left to ponder all that that means for us. But one of the things I think is helpful as we look at that is it's a reminder that God is not bound to some kind of sentimentalism. God isn't here to say, look, I want my books uh, that are in scripture to be nicely polished. He doesn't need to sell them to us. They're real. And that's what we see in Jonah. It is Real, it's not tidy, it's not polished, there's no happy ending, there's no happily ever after. But the closing verses that we'll come to in a couple of weeks' time really show us the climax of everything of God's eternal love for the lost and his suffering for humanity. So what we're going to see is though this reads like a total anticlimax, actually we have the most magnificent climax in a couple of weeks at the very end of this book. So let's move on then. What we have in front of us is the reality of Jonah's anger in the face of abounding love of God, the steadfast love of God. And what we'll explore is that God brings to light the ugliness of sin, not just Jonah's but ours, and the loveliness of the Saviour. And we see it in the context of this stunning Old Testament outpouring of God's free and sovereign grace to the people of Nineveh. So we start then with a resentment in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Jonah took no pleasure in what God had done in Nineveh. Jonah took no pleasure in it at all. The fact that God had worked this incredible uh, grace out amongst the people meant nothing for him. And though the Lord may be rejoicing in the presence of angels in heaven for those who were saved, for those who had come to repentance and to God, Jonah clearly hadn't been looking for it. And when it came, I think it totally embarrassed him. 
He couldn't face it. It did not, none of our coming to, to, to the Lord did not fit with his preconceived ideas as to his grand plan. In Jonah's mind, the Ninevites were not good enough and were too bad and could not be saved. I don't think Jonah truly believed that they could be saved. It didn't fit for him. And I wonder if there's any truth in that for us. If there's any sense that for us there are maybe people, people groups, that subconsciously we just believe are too far away from God, that are just unlovable. I wonder if our prayer life reflects that. Do we have an urgency and consistency in our prayer for those who are far off? Do we have a genuine desire to see those who are far off, maybe even as evil and as wicked as those that were in Nineveh? Because Jonah didn't. Jonah didn't have that desire to see them saved. Do we truly believe that God can save sinners, even the worst of them like us? And I think before we delve more into Jonah's discontent and his unhappiness, it's important for us to ask the question, how on earth did we get here? How on earth did we get here from chapter 2 and 3 now to chapter 4 after all that God has done for his prophet? Jonah had failed before. He'd been miraculously brought to repentance and restoration by the Lord. The Lord, his hand was over everything that he did here. His message was simple yet clear. He preached. What's going on? A couple of things. Firstly and importantly, the repentance and restoration of Jonah was real. I don't think there's any doubt for us that we, uh, I don't think we need to doubt the, the genuineness of Jonah's change of heart in chapter 2. When Jonah was swallowed by the fish, we saw genuine repentance of his heart. I think we saw a man that genuinely and truly did, uh, was transformed. And it is true that reoccurring habitual sin that maybe have little bits of I'm sorry sprinkled in between, does raise questions about the nature of our repentance. Because we're to be a repentant people, not uh, living in periods of habitual sin. So that is there. But I think that Jonah's return was genuine. His commitment to the word of the Lord to Nineveh was genuine. But in neither area was he perfect. Jonah was not committed in his heart to what uh, God was going to do in Nineveh as a result of his preaching. Jonah had his own agenda for Nineveh. And I think he had this great reservation in his heart that was unchanging despite the love and grace that he knew of God. Remember, he tells us back up there, in fact, we'll come to it in a minute, in, in verse 2. Um, and secondly, we, we, we recognise that Jonah's sin is not unique. This is really dramatic. But it's not here for us to look at and consult ourselves as, as, as ordinary folks to say, oh, we could never do something like this. We could never be as bad as Jonah was. But rather what this is to do for us is to emphasise the sinfulness of sin. It is emphasising for us the dangers for everyone. That if Jonah had sin in his heart, even after his deliverance from the fish, there shouldn't be any surprise that none of us are immune to it. But like Jonah, we need to learn this truth and face the problem square on. Why? Well, because Jonah faced what the Lord was doing with anger. This deep-seated conviction of his heart. Jonah returned to what the Lord was doing in anger. And you know, whenever we say no to God, we do as Jonah 
dead. Every time we choose to follow our own ways, our own desires, our own thoughts, our own hearts, I am Jonah. Every time I choose to do what Jonathan would do rather than what God would do, I'm just like him. So we see his resentment. We then see his complaint in this quite lengthy verse 2. It reads, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is it not this? Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarsus. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So nothing paints for us a better picture of the problem of preconceptions and, and, and preconceived ideas. So whatever changes had happened in Jonah's life, whatever understanding he had in his heart after he had experienced the goodness but also the severity of God, we realise that there is one corner of his convictions that could not be reformed. What really got to Jonah was that God would not destroy Nineveh. He believed that salvation was of God. He believed that it was possible. He says it right here. He trusted the Lord for his own salvation. He does it as he prays a couple of times, verses 4 and 6 of chapter 2. He does it. He says, Lord, salvation is of you. And he believes that salvation is a free grace unmerited, unearned by men. But he could not see the same grace that was extended to him extended to Gentiles. And you know, this was a problem that plagued Israel. This idea of Jewish exclusivism, that was his preconceived idea. They'd lost sight that through Abraham, they were to be a blessing to the nations. And Jonah is a symptom of this misconception. He was still committed to this idea. This idea that there is God's people and there is no other. This idea that anybody else could be saved. Jonah had no space in his theology for the salvation of Nineveh. He had a total spiritual and mental block. He had a narrow view of salvation that could not cope with a merciful God to people like the Ninevites. And at one level, this attitude is like the Achilles heel of Hebrew thought. It is ultimately finds its roots in spiritual pride. It is a pride that takes hold of our thinking, that says we are God's people, therefore you can't be. And of course, it's irrational, it's not biblical. To say that God loves us, therefore he can't love anybody else is not right. And it's a pride that has blinkers like on a horse to keep it in a narrow direction. Once we say that we are the people, we say that knowledge and pride dies with us. We are the people, therefore you cannot be. It becomes very easy then to write people off and say you cannot know the truth. We saw the exclusivism of the Jewish thought in Jesus' day. We saw it affect the early church. It's written about uh, multiple times by Paul as to the challenge that's being seen and truly what it means for Gentiles and Jews to fellowship and be uh, in union together in the church. And it became a major obstacle to early evangelism in the church. And at one level, this, this attitude can infiltrate the church today. Certainly as individuals, this idea that there are those who maybe are too far away from God. But of course, we read so clearly, Romans 15 verse 7, all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ. We know that God, uh, that God is a God of all people that wills all to come to him 
And Jonah just could not see it. So what did Jonah do here then in, in verse 2? Firstly, he prayed. He spoke to God and God listens to him with patience and graciousness. And this is, again, mind-blowing. I cannot imagine God on the receiving end of this after everything that he's done. And Jonah prays and is angry. I think God is well within his right here to say, right, Jonah, your request is to die. Go die. I'm so fed up with you. I'm so fed up that you cannot see what I've done in your life and in the lives of the Ninevites. Just, just go. Or for in that second, the Lord just to say, right, you're gone. I want nothing to do with you. But he doesn't do that. We have a glimpse here of the long-suffering of our God. That God would put up with our self-centeredness and just utter irreverence. That God would deal with Jonah again in a gracious way. We just see his grace at work here, even in his simple response to Jonah. But he prays. This was not the prayer of faith like he made in chapter 2. This was not a prayer of faith declaring great truth. But this kind of prayer isn't unique, it's not uncommon. But I think it occurs when we cannot accept the circumstances that we face. I think there's a, there's a massive difference between prayers that come through an intensity or a pain that we don't understand. There's nothing wrong with crying out to God. That's important, that's good for us to do. But that's not what Jonah's doing here. He is refusing to see what God is doing. He's, and there is a massive difference between seeking God's wisdom, guidance and comfort and the confusion and the chaos of life. That's not what Jonah is doing here. And if Jonah had only gone to the word of God, if that was his source of information for the will of God, submitted his heart, then he would have rejoiced over Jonah's conversion. If he had gone to the word, if he had understands who God was, what God was all about, he would have rejoiced. But he didn't because he went looking for judgment. What did he do? He elevated his own opinion above God. That's what Jonah does here. And we find a total clash. God acts, I can't accept. And it just comes to us as an absolute fit of rage. The other thing that we see here is Jonah felt totally justified in this attitude. He explains himself to God. And he's crystal clear of what he said. God, is this not what I told you when we were back at home when I tried to get on this boat? This is the problem. I knew that if I went and preached, because you're good, because you're gracious and merciful and, and slow to anger, you would be steadfast in love and you would save them. So there's not this idea that Jonah doesn't think God is able. Absolutely not. God, Jonah tells us in no uncertain terms in verse 2 that he knows God is able. And these people, these Assyrians, of course, were the evil empire of the day. But his view of Nineveh and how God should deal with them, he'd already decided in his mind. And the third thing here. Jonah objected to the goodness of God. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
this is really dangerous. This is really dangerous because he knows God. He knows who God is and is choosing, despite with everything in front of him, to deny God and deny God's goodness and deny God's working. This is dangerous ground. And this prejudice is just so firmly rooted in his mind. So we come then to our third point, verses three to five, his tantrum. We'll just read out those couple of verses. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under its shade till he should see what would become of the city. The seal of Jonah's frustration with God follows up his complaint that you are just too good to these Ninevites. And he comes then to this statement, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is a grown-up version of the phrase, I'm not playing anymore. You ever remember playing in the playground and the boy that came with the ball? If he decided the game was over, the game was over because he'd pick up his football and off he'd go and that was the game over. That's what's happening here. This is Jonah saying, uh -uh, you've not done things my way, I'm out. And there's no doubt here, Jonah's passion and sincerity. Sinclair Ferguson calls this spiritual infantile regression. Childish, utterly, utterly childish. And the most staggering piece of this is God's response. God's response that he does not say away and die. The Lord doesn't show offence at Jonah's outburst, but God quietly asks an obvious question. And you know, he asks, do you do well to be angry? You remember being a kid and being angry? And somebody might ask you, are you finished now? Is it time to calm down? I think this is what Jesus says, what God says to him when he says, do you do well to be angry? So Jonah is in the half. He's in a rage, it's not fair. God, you can't act like this to the Ninevites. This isn't allowed. So, what we see in Jonah is we see him, we see his anger, his unrelenting anger really of what God has done that he sees as a total injustice. We see him pray, we see him speak to God, and we just see an incredible tantrum. And I want to leave us with, with this just for a couple of minutes. Jonah ends on a cliffhanger, but the gospel leaves no cliffhangers. Do you know, we're never told if Jonah has a change of heart. We have every reason to believe that the Lord brought him back from his foolishness, from his ungraciousness and restored him, restored him and reconciled him again. But what's important for us is not what happened to Jonah. What's important is what the Lord is teaching us through his dealings with Jonah. J.C. Ryle, the, the, the bishop of the 18th, 19th century, said this, those love much who feel much forgiven. Those love much who feel much forgiven. Those who are forgiven love much. Do you know what I think? When we admit with Paul that we are the worst of sinners, when we understand our standing before God as sinners, there'll be room in our hearts for everyone. 
because there will be a desire in us to see others, others that walk in darkness. We read it yesterday morning in First Peter um, as we were preaching, looking at the word foolishness, agnosia, what it means to not believe, to not see. But we will love those who love God and we'll love those who don't love God. We'll have a genuine care and concern. God is love, but we remember that God is love and he shows that to us in the most incredible of ways in that he first loved us. It is the only way we can love God is because he first loved us. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is because, Ephesians 2, he is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were like Nineveh. Lost, helpless, wicked, and dead. Until he loved us, the good news of the gospel was preached to us. We were brought into his light, into new life in Jesus, and we were saved like the Ninevites were. This is salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. It's glorious and it's the good news for the nations. And it leaves us with absolutely no cliffhangers at all. Let me just pray for you. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the challenge that it presents to us. And for here in Jonah chapter 4, may we never read. It's so easy for us, Lord, to read people in the Bible and situations and look at them and detach ourselves from them. But Lord, would you help us as we look at this to see ourselves as we look at both the Ninevites and Jonah. We see our helplessness, our wickedness, how lost we were before you. And in Jonah, Lord, recognising every time we say no to you, we offend you as Jonah did. Help us, Lord, grow our burden for the lost. Grow our burden for those that we would so desperately see you, that we'd love to see you. But we thank you, Lord, most of all, that you are gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. We honour you and glorify you for who you are. Amen. Amen.